Welcome to the Innovative Accountant Podcast, presented by Integrated Advisory by Wealthco. Join your host, CPA, Tim Coquell, as he explores thought-provoking ideas, information, and best practices from leading experts focused on supporting the accounting profession and the integrated advisory community. Here's your host, Tim Coquell. Welcome back to the Innovative Accountant Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Coquell, and we have a special episode for you today. You probably, for our listeners, are noticing that we're in a bit of a different setup. Uh, really excited that our Wealthco group and uh, in the uh, Integrated Advisory Network has moved to a new location, and we have our own uh, studio here now for our podcast. And I was assured from our marketing director, Brighton Udy, that it's going to help with improving the video and audio quality of this podcast, but probably not the quality of the host. So I'm, I'm going to, unfortunately, you're stuck with me. We're going we're gonna to do our best in this new environment. And we've got an excellent podcast for you today. Uh, the focus of today, we're going to be focusing on attracting and retaining executive level top talent and asking some important questions like what creative strategies are companies taking to find top talent? What are the current talent recruitment and retention related themes for 2023 as we move into this year? Uh, what is the future of work and the purpose of an office? There's lots of questions happening these days around remote work environments. We're going to talk about that. Uh, what new work arrangements are companies considering to attract the, the top talent? How does diversity and inclusion fit in? How does coaching and assessment fit in? So we've got we've got a really full uh, full agenda here, and we've got the perfect guest joining us from uh, Toronto. I think just north of Toronto at her cottage here today, Lisa Knight from LHH Knightsbridge. Welcome to our podcast, Lisa. Thank you so much, Tim. It's great to be here. Yeah. And so before we get started, Lisa, I'll just maybe do a quick uh, introduction to our listeners of your background. You've had an extensive career in the recruitment uh, profession. And so just talk a little bit about that. So you're managing partner at LHH Knightsbridge. Uh, with your practice focusing on VP, C-level, and board-level executive searches. Uh, you partner with clients of various sizes, but primarily, I understand, in financial services and professional services, helping them to advance their businesses and achieve their goals through the acquisition and optimization of top talent. I think it's that work, Lisa, that we've uh, had the pleasure of working with you. We've You've helped us attract some really uh, high-level professionals over the years, and we're very grateful for the work that you do there. Um, you also work closely with the leadership development team in your company, uh, crafting tailored solutions that incorporate assessment. We're going to talk about that today and coaching elements into your searches, providing an integrated approach to solving clients' leadership challenges. Um, there was an acquisition, I think, Lee Hecht Harrison acquired Knightsbridge in, in and around 2015, I think it was, uh, Lisa, and, and you were sort of instrumental in some of that transition and ensuring that uh, stability and direction was brought to the business during that uh, significant time of change. Um, with uh, uh, Highland Partners Executive Search for many years prior, managing a large team of 60 researchers and associates across North America, um, you know, from your honors degree with the University of Toronto, uh, obviously lots of credentials to have this important conversation today. Most importantly, married, three children, uh, adult children, and uh, enjoying some cold weather, I understand, today in cottage country north of Toronto. So how, how's, uh, how's your day going? 
<laughs> well, thanks for the uh, overview. It's uh, it's always nice to do a little yeah. trip down memory lane and be reminded of my past. Uh, day's gone uh, really well today. We had lots of bright blue sky and sunshine and cold minus 15 degree high temperatures. So, you know, winter's uh, here with a vengeance, but uh, we're trying to embrace it for a few more days. And then my husband and I are going to head down to... Uh, down to Panama to spend uh, a few weeks uh, there to soak up some sun, work remotely for a bit of time, get some vacation time in, and visit with our adult son and his fiance uh, who are uh, working and teaching in Panama. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad you're getting away from this cold weather that we sent you from Alberta. I think we got <laughs> it a few days before you. So it's, uh, we're, we like to share where, where we can do that. So, so yeah, I, at least I, you know, I'm always interested in our guests and just kind of going back in time a little bit and sort of understanding where their passion came from and what they do. Um, we, you know, we have a lot of innovative people that come on this podcast and, I would definitely consider you one in the recruitment space. And so let's just talk about where that passion started and uh, how you got involved in what you do today. Sure. Thank you for the for the opportunity. So I was actually uh, born in small town, northern Ontario, and, and uh, ended up moving to Toronto to go to university, which is where I also met my husband, um, or the gentleman who became my husband and still is my husband many years later. Uh, I stumbled into the search profession, uh, as many people okay. did back in those very early days of, of the industry. It was not a well-known uh, profession. Um, and it was actually quite a fledgling profession because in those days, uh, people would make a second career out of recruiting. They would build a great career in a profession and then they would take their <clears throat> Rolodex, I use <laughs> that old term Rolodex, and, and really recruit from people they already knew. Uh, and the company I was fortunate enough to, to start my career with um, was taking more of a research-based approach where they would use you know, directories and, and uh, you know, books in libraries, uh, pre-LinkedIn and certainly pre-internet, in fact, uh, to break down organizational structures and try to understand, you know, who was reporting to whom and who was who in, in which roles uh, and using more of a science-based and research-based approach to, to uh, underpin the recruitment efforts. So that was the team that I uh, started um, and built up and led over time. And um, I think what really appealed to me was uh, I, the, I was very academic when I was a student, so I loved doing research. And this was corporate research, you know, really understanding how corporations are structured and um, and how roles and uh, departments were structured and, and really using that information to help my partners make the call regarding who they wanted to, to recruit. Um, and then over time, you know, I got more and more involved in making those initial calls. So that combination of, you know, problem solving and trying to figure out where are we going to find these candidates morphed into, you know, having those initial conversations with candidates to try to understand what was going to make them tick. What would, what would, mm -hmm. what would, you know, cause them to be interested in maybe making a move? How could I convince them if they were, you know, true rock stars that they should be a candidate for one of my client mandates? And so I did this work for many years and then over time built this team. Uh, uh, and then, uh, you know, we ended up being uh, acquired by a North American or a global firm and my mandate became a North American mandate. Uh, and through that, 
uh, I think you mentioned I had a team of some some 60 people at one point across North America. It was a little unwieldy, to be honest. But we we were really excited and passionate about uh, you know, finding that great talent to help solve our clients' problems. Uh, so it started off more of a, a of just a problem, a desire to solve, you know, complex business problems uh, on the people side, but then really morphed into helping those organizations achieve their goals through the acquisition of great talent. And that's really, I think, what, what you know, drives me to this totally day. After too. more than 30 years in the business, I still, you know, love finding that great uh, rock star that a client might be looking yeah. for. Yeah, perfect. And so was that time mostly like you'd had a couple of, you, you've been in organizations for a long time. So Highland Partners, was that sort of when you talk about building that research team, that large group, is that where that sort of started? Yes, yes. Well, it started with a predecessor company to Highland Partners. So okay. it was a company originally with a different name that then grew and morphed and changed and so forth. But it ultimately became Highland Partners. But there was just the one organization that I was part of until um, leaving them in at the end of 2003 uh, at a point when they, the partners were selling the company uh, to um, another search firm. And I uh, had the opportunity to step away and sort of just think about what I wanted to do with the rest of my career. Um, and that was when I decided to join, to join Knightsbridge uh, because I really liked their platform and their business model. And it was just different than what everybody else was doing at the time. So was that more, was that where more of that research-based approach kind of kicked in or were both companies sort of doing a bit of that? Or did you sort of take a lot of that process and, and sort of integrate that into Knightsbridge when you joined? Uh, very good question. Well, we, the industry by this point in time, I'm talking, this was the first 20 years of my career. So those first 20 years, the industry really did mature and, and almost every search firm was following the same methodology uh, or a similar methodology and had teams of what we call researchers, you know, in the, uh, in the back office, so to speak, finding the candidates through various means, uh, including, you know, online and LinkedIn and so forth. Uh, and then there would be the partners that would do the interviewing and the client managing. So that was a very common mm -hmm. construct uh, okay. by the time I left Highland Partners. What, what I did, uh, what brought me to uh, Knightsbridge was my desire to move out of that big people and team leadership role and become a client facing business developing okay. partner with my own clients yeah. uh, and with the, with the mandate to actually, you know, acquire business uh, and, and then fulfill that business with the support of others. Yeah, no, that's perfect. And, and so your, your focus in professional financial services, how did that evolve as you sort of started to build your own client base? Well, I didn't start there, except uh, insofar as I did a lot of work for Knightsbridge, the firm itself. Uh, we were quite a young company, and so uh, they were my my first client, actually. You know, really, actually bringing on board individuals to lead our assessment practice, our coaching practice, senior consultants in career transition, and so on. Um, so that was a lot of fun, and it really helped me uh, hone my skills. Um, but. I didn't move into financial services as a area of focus until after we were acquired by Lee Hecht Harrison, uh, my predecessor, uh, who had had at the time led the search practice. He 
also owned the financial services and professional services vertical. So I focused on other sectors like energy, uh, retail and consumer. Mm -hmm. That's really where I, I spent a number of years. But I'd always had a passion for financial services because I did a lot of financial services work when I was in Highland Partners. And so uh, when the opportunity presented itself uh, post-acquisition for me to step into a leadership role, uh, I also had at the same time the opportunity to uh, resume uh, my work in financial services, and I, I, I happily stepped back into it. So since that time, I, I worked predominantly with uh, wealth management companies, insurance companies, uh, consulting firms, um, asset management firms, pension plans, just a wide array of different players in, in uh, professional and financial services. And it's uh, very, very rewarding. I really enjoy it. Yeah, I, I think that's obviously been our connection as well. And and with our listeners being, you know, we innovative account podcast you know most of our listeners are professionals in the accounting community or the financial services space i think it's important that uh, you're able to be here today to share sort of that that specific experience as it relates to their challenges you know every every firm or member we talk to their the the number one issue is people and um you know there's we're going to dive into some of these issues as we go through that today um but yeah it's been it's been uh Interesting to see how your your experience has evolved. Your your let's talk about Knightsbridge overall, like the services that it provides. Let's just walk through that because obviously there's the attraction, the, the bringing on candidates, but just walk through what what you are doing for corporate clients today and how you're helping them. Absolutely. So the uh, the organization uh, Lee Hecht Harrison Knightsbridge is what we're called today. Um, and we are uh, a subsidiary of ADECO. So ADECO, in fact, is a very large 25 billion euro uh, publicly traded company based in Switzerland focused in the staffing industry. LHH uh, is one of their large business units and we are part of LHH. And what LHH and Knightsbridge do is a combination of attracting uh, great talent for our clients. So we have three recruitment practices, uh, the executive search practice where I play, an executive interim practice where we have where we place leaders on contracts, long-term contracts uh, at the executive level. And then we have a professional search practice. So that just tucks in just below the levels at which the executive search uh, team operates. Um, but in addition to our three search practices, we also have a whole team of, of consultants and professionals that focus on assessment and coaching, two of the key ways that we uh, also assist our clients in uh, making sure they're getting the best out of their talent. Um, and these teams in assessment and coaching also work closely with us in recruitment because at the end of the search, there's usually an opportunity to assess the candidates for a good fit and then to coach them as they come on board to make sure that they're going to hit the ground running and, and be really optimized in the role. And that's where we've worked really closely with our colleagues in assessment and coaching to ensure that there's a really nice point of integration uh, and that what we learn about our clients along the way gets transferred into their understanding of what these finalist candidates need to be and do in order to be successful in the client environment. Yeah. And then our, our third business is our career transition and mobility business. And it's kind of funny that I call it our third business because for many years it was our first business. It's really what Knightsbridge was, was best known for. And that is when companies have uh, a change in direction or when economic uh, 
you know, uh, situation requires a downsizing or what have you. And there are people that need to exit an organization. We are one of the biggest players in the world uh, as it relates to helping those people find a new home. So we have a, a, mm -hmm. a whole plethora of consultants uh, that work with individuals to help them transition. And they help, <clears throat> excuse me, they help them with their resumes and they help them to understand what their you know, kind of new path forward should look like. Do they want to just do something very similar to what they've done in the past or are they looking for something completely different? And so that's a whole other a form of consulting support that we provide at LHH Knightsbridge and companies know us very, very well in that sphere as well. Yeah, I, I can imagine, you know, especially over the last number of years with COVID and, you know, downsizing and just lots of that going on. And then now there's like impending talk about recession. I'm sure that that is a critically important part of your business. Absolutely. And it's interesting how <clears throat> there's this sort of counter cyclicality built into our business model. One would presume that, you know, in uh, tough economic times, there's slowdowns and layoffs. Uh, and that actually feeds our career transition business. And then in, you know, busy economic times, there's lots of hiring and need to develop your mm -hmm. talent. And that really feeds our leadership consulting and search businesses. Um, and that's been a very kind of uh, typical model for us. We've, we've leveraged that and, and this served us very well. But there's lots of signs that with this uh, new kind of pending uh, economic downturn that we're all expecting, that it's not going to follow the same formula as what we've seen in the past. And while the economy may be slowing down, it doesn't appear that hiring is going to be slowing down. So it's a real conundrum uh, that companies are going to have to work through. You know, how do they cut costs and keep their businesses uh, you know, uh, profitable and, and viable and successful, but not lose the top talent that they need because they can't really afford to to let people go in, in, in many instances. There are some layoffs, but we're not expecting there to be as many as we've seen in, in previous uh, recessions or semi-recessions, whatever we want to call this period that we're in right now. Well, that's it, it's interesting from, a, you know, being involved in the wealth management business, we're always looking at those types of things. And, uh, you know, I, I think the thing that softens this recession is that, you know, pretty much, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but what we hear is pretty much if you want a job, there is one, you know, right. that there is such a shortage of, of uh, labor that it's a different, it's a different type of a recession. So it's kind of, I think what you're you're saying is you're still seeing people trying to recruit and hire, despite the oh. fact that things are slowing down a little bit. Most definitely, uh, there has been no slowdown in hiring that we've seen, um, and there's still uh, a war for talent out there. There is, uh, yeah. I think, there've been a lot of people who have, um, you know, either retired early. Uh, something like 30% of the retirees of last year were early retirees, unplanned early retirees, which can be very challenging for the organization to work around. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, there's also need for, for more talent than, than we have to fulfill a lot of the roles that are out there. And increasingly yeah. at the senior levels, you know, people, companies are looking to upgrade their talent, uh, looking for something different, something new in their next chief financial officer or chief operating officer or chief human resources officer, realizing that industry is changing, business needs are changing, and therefore what we're looking for in our leadership uh, folks needs to be upgraded to keep up with those changing circumstances. And that's what's driving, I think, a lot of the, uh, the needs that we see. Yeah, yeah, Th that unplanned retirement piece, like what, 
early retirement. Like, what do you think's driving that today? What, you know, that's, we've been seeing that and hearing a lot about that as well. What, what is leading to that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I think there's probably a number of factors uh, and certainly perhaps more that I don't, uh, that I don't know or don't understand, but, you know, uh, certainly people, uh, there's a burnout factor. So if you can afford to step away and you're exhausted and certainly through the, uh, COVID experience through the pandemic, there was a lot of exhaustion, a lot of burnout. Yeah. Uh, people just decided to step away. Um, I think people are, you know, realizing that they have currency and that they can reinvent themselves, show up differently, find a different place to work, uh, decide the parameters within which they want to work. And so they are stepping away from work and, and kind of just reevaluating what work is going to look like for them in the future. Uh, so it's not necessarily retirement and never working again. I think yeah. it's retirement and then reinventing uh, of oneself in a, mm -hmm. in a different form, in a different way of, of looking at work. And this is really uh, a huge amount of fuel for our interim, man interim management practice because a lot of executives are saying, I don't want that full-time gig anymore. I want to be, you know, working on projects, work, doing interesting work, place me, uh, you know, as an interim uh, head of technology or an interim, you know, uh, head of sales or marketing, and I can go and do some really cool work, help with a big project, a big initiative, and then go and do it again somewhere else. Uh, and that seems to, you know, fuel a lot of people's uh, interest in doing interesting work without being tied down to something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, I think COVID definitely had pushed the pause button for a lot of people to kind of reflect on their careers, careers, their life and, uh, how they were going to maybe make some changes to make them themselves happier. So it's, make, it's definitely think, playing out. I think the happiness factor is, is an important one to, uh, to, to, to lean in on for a moment because people, I think up until the pandemic, people thought that you, you know, had to work a certain way. It was expected. It was required. It was the talk track that we gave ourselves every morning. But through COVID, we became aware of the fact that there's a whole lot more to life than work. And other priorities began to emerge, self-care, <clears throat> wellness, and mental health, uh, families, and the importance of being there for our children and for our elderly parents and, you know, the folks that were most vulnerable uh, during the pandemic. I think a lot of people really, you know, had a, a major, you know, uh, rethink about the importance of work and where it fits in the whole construct of who they are as a, as a human being. And that's led to a lot of rethinking of the nature of work of, you know, people who can retire do, choosing to do so and others choosing to kind of reinvent themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's uh, interesting times for, for people making those choices, but also for companies. And we're going to talk about, you know, what you're seeing on that and some of the themes as we, as we move forward here, before we jump in there, I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, back to the profession, the financial services industry, what are, what are some of the types of roles you're finding that most companies are focused on filling these days at, at those higher levels? Like, has that changed? Is it because some of the senior people are stepping out of the workforce, retiring earlier, you know, adjusting lifestyles? What does that look like today? What are the companies that you're dealing with really, who are they really focused on, on uh, placing? So uh from what we see, and of course, this is what we see. I, I think if you were talking to a different search person uh, in a different firm, they might see something a little bit different than what, what we see. 
but you know, when we talked about retirement, uh, often it's the CEOs that have the option to do that. And so mm-hmm. I think we've seen a lot of turnover at the CEO level and a lot of boards, you know, coming to us asking for our help in, in finding a new CEO for their organization. So that's been uh, a very dominant role uh, in our, in our mix over the last, you know, 12 to 18 months. Um, certainly all the, the chief level roles, chief financial officer, chief operating officer, chief human resources officers, head of talent, uh, heads of technology. Um, and on the consulting side, very senior consulting partners in, you know, digital, in uh, AI, in automation. So lots of uh, lots happening on the technology front, Not no surprise there. But mm-hmm. I would say an equal emphasis on... Um, on organizational leadership, broadly speaking, and on people leadership. Um, those, those, those would be the, the, the big ones that we see a lot of. Um, and where there's a lot expected of these new leaders coming in, I think perhaps some different uh, attributes than what was sought after in the past. So let's, let's talk about how that's changing and what those qualifications look like for those roles. Like, has that evolved? What is expected, uh, you know, not every CEO is cut from the same cloth. How, how do you, how do you, what, what are they looking for differently today? And how do you help them assess that? Well, <clears throat> so I think what's, let's start with what's the same. What's the same through, you know, pre-COVID and right through till today is, is those underlying sort of technical qualifications um, every role has them, uh, always has, and, and, and continues to require those underlying uh, technical skills. Um, where where we're called in, and where our I think uh, greatest uh, uh, contribution lies is in understanding not not just that the candidates have those underlying uh, important qualifications, but that in addition to those, they have the right leadership qualities and the right approach to leadership that will enable them to be successful in the environment. So it typically starts not with a review of the role, but rather with a review of the organization. Where is the organization today and where is it heading? What are some of the big challenges? What are some of the big opportunities that this organization is facing? What is it going to take for this organization to be successful in the future, not today? Uh, And if you look at it from a future-focused perspective, then you start to build the profile of that next leader, be it CFO, CHRO, CEO, with the future in mind. And and it becomes very clear as you speak to the stakeholders, and it's a lot of stakeholdering that we do at the front end of every search to really get all the inputs that we require. They're the ones that can tell you exactly what's going on in the industry. They can tell you, you know, what was missing in the previous incumbent. Uh, and, and, you know, as, as we often find, it's a combination of, you know, that strategic agility, uh, the ability to uh, to be bold, to be visionary, to you know see around corners, to anticipate where the business is going, um, coupled with the ability to bring people along, uh, mm-hmm. to create the kind of environment where uh, you know individuals want to uh, build their career, uh, to create leaders that can then cascade that capability and quality to the leaders that they lead, and then so on and so forth down through the organization. Um, it's, it's about, uh, inspiring, uh, not necessarily just followership, but inspiring 
others to be leaders in the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and, and with that leadership, I think, you know, some of the just kind of finer points include things like being empathetic, um, right. you know, being a good listener. Uh, it's not, you know, standing on the hill top and saying, this is where we're going, follow me. It's being authentic and genuine and caring and being a great listener and creating an environment where people can make a strong contribution and be heard. And that's going to be the type of leadership qualities that I think uh, most of my clients are looking for and that really will distinguish the successful companies in the future. Yeah, for sure. You know, that balance between EQ, IQ, strategic planning, um, like you say, empathy and all, all of those pieces are critically important. How do you, how do you assess that though? So a lot of those, you know, the technical stuff, it's kind of easy to go back and maybe get references or you look at their training, technical training. It's usually easier to sort of figure that out, but how do you figure out some of those other skills, those leadership things? Are there tools that you use in your process? You talked about, you know, attracting then that sort of coaching and, and piece of that how, what are you using today to identify that in strong candidates? Well, I couldn't tell you that, Tim, because that's a secret sauce. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, well, that's so, why I'm asking. Uh-huh. Yes, I'm not. No. Uh, so it, it isn't really that, uh, that magical at the end of the day. It, you know, we create a very comfortable environment for our candidates and, and we engage them in conversations much like the one we're having today, uh, we want them to tell us their stories and, and tell us about not just what they've accomplished throughout their career, but how they've gone about accomplishing those things. And it's really in asking the right questions, digging into not just the what, but the how, uh, that you can start to really understand the, the MO uh, of, of a leader, you know, and, and what kind of leader they are. And the tools that they use, the tactics that they've deployed, what's succeeded, what's helped them to be successful. Uh, you listen for humility. You listen for uh, times when they have failed and what they've learned from it. Uh, so it's the science uh, and art of interviewing is something that really is that combination of, of art and science. Um, and over years and years and years, you build up a, a capability. Uh, you build up intuition, which is nothing more than the, you know, the, the sum of experience, I think some have said, uh, but it's, mm-hmm. it's really a combination of asking great questions, knowing what to listen for, keeping that blueprint in your mind of what the client is, is trying to accomplish. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, bringing the candidate through this journey with you. Uh, it has to be right for them as well. You know, at the end of the day, um, we don't want candidates that are not delighted and excited and and keen to take on the challenge. I mean, that enthusiasm and motivation has got to be there in addition to everything Mm -hmm. else that we're looking for. Um, But when we get down to, you know, when we get down to it, we will narrow the slate of candidates, but our client then also has to interview them. And they'll be asking some of the same kinds of questions, listening for the same types of, of things that we're listening for. We actually build the question list for our clients so they can be consistent and they can ask the same things of all candidates and do a compare and contrast uh, with, with, you know, a, to do a relative assessment as well as an absolute assessment of the candidates. And then at the end of the process, we do a combination of reference checking and we have this assessment uh, tool that we have available as well, which not all clients uh, participate in. Some have their own assessments, others don't 
support wanting to use an assessment, but we always recommend it because it does add a lot of scientific rigor to, you know, the process that we've all been through together. And, you know, the proof, I guess, is in the pudding. When we look at our success rate, we close about 90% of the searches that we are awarded, which is a very high percentage. Wow. And we have yeah, a 96% sure. stick rate. So 96% of our searches, those candidates are still enrolled a year later. And yeah, often good. well, well beyond that's that. But that's what we yeah. track. Yeah. 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 So that's, you know, that science art explanation. So we've had other podcast guests on here where we've talked about profiling and some of those pieces. So you match assessment tools. I know even in our process in the past, we've used things like Colby, Print. Uh, there's lots of different tools that are out there. How important do you think it is for companies to be using some of those tools to make this more about science than sort of a gut feel? You know, everybody goes to interviews and you're kind of like, I like that person. Or I think, you know, and there's probably companies that just want to hire based on that. But making sure that the person is right for the role, they, they kind of check all the boxes, as you say. How important is using some of those profiling tools in that process from your perspective? Well, I think it's very important, uh, Tim. I think at the same time, though, you know, if you follow a very thorough, objective, third-party-led search practice or search process, you can be very confident even without an assessment. But if you don't do a full mm -hmm. search, that's when assessment becomes absolutely essential, in my opinion. It's, it's a great value add yeah. if you do a search. It's an essential tool if you don't, because otherwise you really do run a high risk of simply, you know, following your own biases and you know, falling in love with someone who's an awful lot like you or an awful lot like the other people in the organization, not challenging yourself to think more strategically or more uh, uh, scientifically about what is the problem that you're trying to solve and does this new leader actually help you get there? Uh, so I think that, you know, I think there, there's huge value in both uh, search and assessment. If you do neither, I think you're taking a very big risk. Yeah. Okay. No, and I, in our, again, in our company, we've seen the benefits of both of that. So that's great advice. I appreciate that. Um, let, let's segue a little bit. I just want to talk, and you've touched on some of these things, but I want to talk about, so what are the themes as we roll into 2023 here? You've got companies that are recruiting people. What are the challenges that they're facing? What are the themes that are sort of rising to the surface? And I think everybody could probably name a few, but from your perspective, what would the core, maybe two or three things be that companies are, are, are trying to address? Well, I think one of the biggest issues that, that companies are grappling with right now is this whole re return to work construct. Uh, you know, to what extent, especially, you know, for companies that have mostly desk workers or knowledge workers, uh, the pandemic gave uh, us not just permission, it kind of forced us to figure out how to work remotely, proved that we could work remotely in, in many cases where we hadn't in the past. Um, and now, Companies and individuals are both looking at this and saying, what next? Uh, everything that we hear suggests that most companies are trying to encourage people back into the office as much as possible. Uh, and everything that we hear says that most individuals don't want that. So yeah. we are <laughs> in a bit of a conundrum on that point. 
Uh, and I think that's one of the big ones that needs to be solved. Um, I also think that, you know, companies are really wrestling with retention. You know, there's been a lot of turnover uh, of talent, a lot of loss of talent. Individuals are leaving often for more money or for more flexibility. Uh, if they are being forced into the office and it's not to their liking, that's going to, you know, not sit well with individuals. People today do have a lot more um, uh, power in the uh, in the employee-employer power balance. Uh, more of it sits with the employee. And so they're choosing to work where they can feel like they have more flexibility. That's a big, big deal. Um, so that too goes back to that, you know, uh, work construct, work from the office, work from home or some kind of hybrid. Uh, I think that's a, a big tool in the retention toolbox that, that companies are going to have to, uh, you know, come to grips with. Um, but, but, you know, money is a big one. As, as, you know, as I touched upon, I think, you know, with, with the current economic situation being what it is, typically salary is not a big driver for people to be attracted to new roles. But right now, companies can use money to attract talent. Uh, and in money, money talks. Uh, it's gone from like number six uh, on the list of reasons why people make job changes to number one. And that's yeah, wow. a remarkable shift over the course of a single mm -hmm. year. Uh, but the cost of living has gone up so significantly in the last year that it's an understandable uh, outcome. And so with that, I think companies have to, you know, really consider, uh, do I just throw money at the problem? Well, nobody thinks that's a really good solution. Um, so, you know, I think there, there have to, you have to think about other ways. You have to be, you know, a fair payer. You have to be competitive. You have to keep your eye on the market and know what competitive is. But by the same token, I think smart employers should be thinking more broadly about that whole employee value proposition. What are we offering? The whole package. Yeah. The whole package. What are we offering? Why would people want to come here? Mm -hmm. Why would people want to stay here? And there's so much more than money uh, that you can consider and that you need to consider, like flexibility, like creating an inclusive place to work, uh, like um, uh, mental well-being, uh, wellness and mental health, all the programs associated with that. It's a huge deal right now. Um, and not just offering programs, but making sure that they're being used, making sure people take their vacation and know that they can and shouldn't feel like they're some kind of low performer for wanting to have time away from the office. Um, so I think, you know, companies come to us all the time and say, what can we be doing to uh, retain our top talent? And there's there's a huge uh, array of ways that companies can can act can act on on these uh, initiatives and, and create a more compelling and uh, and robust and and positive place for people to come to work. No, that that's a perfect overview and summary of some of those key things. So the, the things that I heard out of that was we've got this remote flexibility as a calm as a big theme right now. Um, we, the second piece you talked a lot about was, uh, you know, retaining people, you know, labor shortages, it's supply demand, like the yeah. employees are re requiring more, more income and to deal with finances, inflation, all those things. But that's putting a lot of pressure in the system on, okay, how do we, how do companies deal with that? Um, and then the third piece, which you touched on a bit, I want to just sort of comment on it so it's so, so that inclusion or that diversity 
uh, conversation. How much is that you're finding coming into play as well into, into the current environment? Well, I think it's become a huge uh, component of what we do, Tim, to be, uh, to be honest. I, I think we on the search side don't spend as much time on the inclusion part of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, our focus tends to be more on uh, helping our clients meet their diversity goals. And so literally every search we do is done with a view to creating a diverse shortlist. Uh, and I will say, okay. you know, I, I recently crunched these numbers for uh, another client that I was chatting with recently and, and uh, was really super pleased to see that last year, uh, 73% of our placed candidates actually helped our clients achieve their diversity goals. They were either uh, women or, or people of color uh, that we place in these executive positions uh, across all industries, including financial services. And people always say to me, you know, financial services, it's all, you know, white men. Well, if you look hard, you can find great talent that that does actually represent uh, the diverse uh and makeup of our society and, and, and we can help our, our clients achieve their goals that way. And I'm, I'm super proud of, of being able to do that. And then the companies themselves, you know, once they get that talent, you know, it's only part of the answer. The rest of it is how do you create the programs inside the organization so that people feel like they belong. And this Mm -hmm. sense of belonging is one of the key metrics uh, that people are looking for uh, when it comes to, you know, where they work. They want to go to work and feel like their work matters, that they're respected, that they're heard, that they're being developed, and that they belong. And if you can't make people feel like they belong, regardless of their, you know, their gender, uh, their uh, ethnic background, um, their... uh, sexual orientation or preferences, then you're going to have uh, an issue as it relates to, you know, retention and and engagement of your workforce. Conversely, if you can build Mm -hmm. that kind of environment, you're going to create a phenomenal place for people to come to work. And, and ironically, without forcing your, your employees to do so, they'll actually want to come to the office fairly frequently because they're going to feel like that's a great (laughs) place to hang out and be with other people that they want to be with. Well, and I think that, that's a great segue. So if we sort of tackle these three areas and we start with kind of that remote environment, because I think that that's one of the biggest challenges that companies, I think, felt through COVID was, you know, they might have been ready to go remote. They might have had the technology to go and do that. But how do you maintain that culture of belonging? And how do you do that from your kitchen tables? And I think that that's in talking to, you know, companies and groups through this podcast or just in my travels, that was a challenge. People weren't really ready for that. And so let's go, let's go back to that. Cause you know, there's a survey that came out recently and I think it said something like 80% of Canadian remote workers would quit their job if their employers asked them to return to the office five days per week. So when you yeah. hear studies and surveys and things coming like that, that's a real, that's a big deal. And so I, I'm interested in your experience and let's maybe tackle it from both the employee and then the employer's perspective. Is that what you're hearing from employees? Like when you're out finding talent and you're talking to talent and you're looking at putting them in these positions, how important is that today that that flexibility that they want to work from home? They want two, three days. They want that flexibility. Like, is that, 
Is that as prevalent as, as some of these studies suggest in your experience? In, in my experience, uh, at the leadership level, there is, it's very rare for an individual to say, I, I feel I need to work remotely all the time. They know that okay. as a leader of teams and as part of the executive team, they need to come together on a pretty regular basis. Um, yeah. And so the expectation of, of senior leaders is that they will spend time in the office, but most of them do not want to be told that they must spend time in the office, and most of them do not want to spend every day in the office. And, mm -hmm. and, and this is true for the leaders, but as soon as you get down to high-level sole contributors, it's a whole different game. Those are the folks that actually do not want to come into the office for the most part. They're the ones, they're the 80%, I think, that that survey uh, is, is referring to. And it's certainly been my experience that high-functioning, expensive, top-end, high-performing, sole contributors, and probably everyone you know, below that level, if you will, um, would feel the same way. I, I can do my job remotely. I prefer the flexibility. I don't feel like I need to have big brother watching over me. I get more done at home. I don't have to spend, waste my time commuting. I don't have to put on makeup and high heel shoes and spend all that money on all that, you know, it's just issue after issue. And it's all from an employee perspective, piling up on in favor of being uh, able to, to work remotely and having the trust of their boss mm -hmm. that, that they can work right. remotely. Now, this does, though, beg the question, can employers trust their employees to be doing the work? And how do you lead and how do you hold people accountable in this new world? This is causing right. a whole new approach to leadership because this is not leadership by walking around or leadership by looking over someone's shoulders or, you know, you know, for individuals can't prove that they're that they're getting the work done simply by being present. But the truth is, they were never getting the work done by being present. Uh, right. So this is really just about measuring output and, and being more deliberate about setting goals and being more deliberate about communicating with your employees and creating platforms for people to come together and you know, do soft collaboration and share information and share ideas. And we've done it on screen for almost three years now. So it absolutely can be done. And furthermore, it can also create a more inclusive workforce for people that have, say, certain disabilities and for whom it's difficult for them to come into an office. Uh, you can create a, a much more um, inclusive workforce for, uh, for folks uh, for whom that is the case. Um, and so I think, again, if you look at it from the employer's side, are you really going to create a more productive environment by forcing people into the office? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think you could make the case that, that there's, it's easier to collaborate. It's definitely easier to do things like onboarding new employees. Um, and it's definitely easier for building connective tissue. And that belonging. So that's the thing that, that you know, notwithstanding what every individual seems to want, all this flexibility and, and ability to work from home, uh, what I think the price we're going to pay over time is the loss of culture. It's really hard to build culture remotely and to maintain culture remotely. So I think what the challenge is going to be is to find that right balance of not forcing people back into offices, but 
drawing them back in, making them want to come together on a frequent enough basis that you do have a good culture and you have the chance to positively reinforce that culture through activities and, you know, rewards and sharing of uh, successes and, and things that you actually do need to get together to do. I think that's probably what the purpose of the office is going to morph to become uh, more than just a place to work and, you know, sit in your Mm -hmm. cubicle and put your headset on and do what you could have done at home just as effectively. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great answer is actually my next question was going to be, you know, you've got fully back to the office, you've got hybrids and then you got fully remote and it's sort of the plus and minuses of each of these. And you did a great job of kind of explaining, you know, yeah, the culture is maybe a little easier in onboarding versus, you know, remote, you got flexibility, but then you've got to try and create that engagement. And it's just interesting. Are, are you finding the leaders in these, in your clients and these companies that you're dealing with, where's their mindset at, at with all of this? Like, I, you know, I, I look at like in the news, you got Elon Musk who comes in, lays off 50% of the workforce on Twitter and then says, everybody else is coming back to the office. Like everybody, if you're not in the office, you're done. And so it's just a great example of really strong views and opinions on this. What are you finding with the companies that you're dealing with today? Do you find you've got people in that camp? You got people in the other camp that are, and, and how are, how are they sort of working their way through that? And where do you guys fit in and helping them with that? Well, we, we do have, you know, clients in both camps. Uh, I, I wanted to be able to say, oh no, all of our, our clients are so enlightened and so Canadian and polite and nobody's forcing anyone to do anything, <laughs> but that's not the case. <laughs> No. Um, we do have, you know, in fact, some of our clients, I would say, uh, in manufacturing uh, environments, for example, where all through COVID, you know, to keep those plants running, people had to be physically present. And and yeah. so the the business leaders would say, listen, it's not fair for all these office workers to be able to work remotely when all of these, uh, you know, plant workers have to come to the office every day we have to create a consistent approach here. And so we, we did have clients that, that forced their employees, their, their office employees back to work, even when it wasn't safe to do so. It was quite disturbing and very challenging. And in one case, I actually um, fired a client, uh, which is <laughs> the only time I've ever done it in my career. But I, I just didn't want to represent that organization to the candidate market because I didn't believe in, in forcing people to work in an office when they didn't have to. Uh, so I think they are the outliers, uh, you know, unless you've got a situation where um, it, where it's a must work environment, you know, must be physically present environment. Uh, most of our clients, not all of them, but most of them are more open to some kind of hybrid arrangement. Uh, they really want to encourage their employees to come back. A lot of them believe it's better to be together. There's more value to be gained by sharing, by something a client and I coined the other day was an accidental accelerant. This meeting in the hallway asked a very good mm-hmm. question of, a, of the head of talent acquisition, actually, in this case. And she came back with a, with a plan for what she was going to do. And it's really caught fire. And it's a very, very positive, exciting new direction that they're going to take with their talent acquisition approach. It wouldn't have happened had it not accidentally happened in the hallway. So, you know, those kinds of things, you know, companies are very mindful that there's value uh, to be had if you can physically be together. But 
as soon as you start forcing people together, you get the backlash. So this is the walk that all these you know, leaders are, are currently managing through. And they're, they seem to be finding their way, but I suspect they bump their toe from time to time. Yeah. It's not easy. Yeah, and no, no, there's no, I, there's no, there's no, yeah, there's no blueprint for us. We're all figuring it out as we go along. No, exactly. Exactly. I, I love the, the accidental uh, comment you made there. Like most of the creative things happen when you're bored or when you're not structured. And, um, you know, I, I look at it even in our own company, you're ex- exactly right. That having those interactions that turn into a conversation that wasn't anticipated can change your company. Um, and those are tough to do when you're trying to do that over teams and zoom all the time. So it is, it is trying to find that balance. And it sounds like the companies you're dealing with are working to create flexibility for people that are saying, no, I want more flexibility. I don't want to be told. Um, but at the same token, they've got to then measure that success and whether a person working remotely is being productive and that's creating a whole other, you know, and this isn't maybe your area of expertise. It's maybe more in the legal profession, but you're hearing, you know, uh, time theft and there's, you know, for our accounting community, there was a a court case in BC here in the last few weeks where uh, an account, I think it was an accounting firm or accounting group let go of an accounting employee and uh, the, the, sued the company, the employee for wrongful dismissal. And then the company countersued based on time theft that they were remote working remotely and actually not doing the time they said they were doing and they won. And so it's a a really interesting precedent that's being set right now because of these changes that everybody's trying to figure out. It's sort of like, okay, well, if we can't see you in your desk to your earlier appointment, or I can't sort of see that you're working, even though we know that's kind of irrelevant. Um, how, how do we start to create some systems that actually measure that? And I think right. that's probably, as you start to think of technology and measurement, it's sort of this next uh, evolution of where we're going. Um, but man, you know, you got all these issues that are emerging from how do you, like, is it okay to track people's time when they're at the computer, their mouse clicks, you know, right. like all this is a whole new world for everyone, right? And I'm sure you're on the front line of that as people are trying to hire and you're creating flexibility. It's it's hard to kind of get around. It, it is, and and you're right. There's there's there there are ethical aspects to it. There are legal aspects to it. There are technology aspects to it. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, if part of what you're trying to uh, create is a trusting relationship with your employees on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you know, you're watching them while they work uh, remotely. Yeah. You, you, you're, you're kind of working at cross purposes here. So that, that's not necessarily yeah. the answer either. Uh, I think, right. you know, what it comes down to is having the right systems, uh, having the right um, leadership and leadership approaches so that you are actually measuring the right things not just time at mm-hmm. a desk, but really productivity and output, right? Uh, which is what we should have been measuring all along. Yeah. But I think Res- you know, re- managers, managers were lazy. Me- yeah. Measure results, absolutely. Yeah. Not yeah. time. Yeah. And yeah. I, yeah. So it's getting clear on KPIs and, and leveraging technology to get better reporting on how, how projects are moving along and where they're at. I, I, I agree entirely with what you said. I think that that's the next iteration of this for companies and we can't be lazy anymore about it we can't think just because somebody's sitting there we can see them that it's that we're getting the results we need out of that and and we never could by the way but we always thought we could right 
Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. So we, we talked about that remote work, obviously an important piece. You're, uh, you're seeing that you're helping companies be, be more flexible, especially as they're attracting that talent. That's an important piece. Let's talk about the income piece now for just a minute. Um, you've got it in the employees hands today being able to go, okay, there's not enough talent. You know, this is what I'm worth. If your companies that you're dealing with that have a hard time sort of passing that increasing labor cost on, what are you coaching them to do to still attract that type of talent and not make it just about more, more cash? How, how do you, how do you create a program and a, and a, uh, entice those people to go that I'm going to do that with, without it just being about the money, get them back to where money's number six. Right. Right. Well, so one of the things I didn't mention is that as part of my client base, I actually do work with a number of government agencies um, like on the regulatory side in financial services, for example, that's where it, sort of, it, it ties back to my financial services practice. But a lot of these government agencies, you know, financial regulators and the Ontario Securities Commission and these types of entities, they don't have unlimited funds and they cannot right. just pay whatever, you know, the market demands. They are mandated by government as to what they can, how they can increase salaries. And it's very restrictive. Similarly with a lot of the pension plans, they, you know, the, the government pension plans, they can't pay market rates. They have to pay what the former incumbent was paid and not a penny more. So in that context, we do get very involved with our clients in, in a number of ways. One is to understand the full compensation on offer. So it's not just base salary, but what else do you have in that total rewards context that we need to be able to uh, convey to those candidates so they understand that full value uh, and one of the things that a lot of these government agencies and some financial institutions have is a pretty lovely pension plan. So let's understand the value of the pension plan and let's consider that as part of our uh, financial package. Uh, they often have, you know, great uh, rewards as it relates to, you know, ongoing education um, or, you know, supporting uh, individuals uh, through various kind of, of life's journeys. So either their mat leave replacements or paternity leave uh top-ups and things like that are, are, are often better than industry. So you look at the really the full package. So that's number one. Number two for us is what do we say and who are we targeting? Because if we're talking to people who are money motivated, we're talking to the wrong candidates. All right. If we're talking to candidates who are purpose-driven, then we might be talking to the right candidate. So we need to tap into, you know, we need to tap into that. A lot of individuals, if you ask them the right questions, you'll find, in fact, it's not about the money. Uh, it, it becomes about the money because they're unhappy about some other things. And it may be right now that money is speaking loudly because of the current economic situation, but that's going to settle down. That's not a forever thing. Yeah. We're building for the future, not for the short run. And so if you think about it from an overall career arc perspective, you talk to the right people and you talk to them about making a difference and working for an organization that stands for something more than making money. And I think mm -hmm. every organization can be that organization. Even if you are an accounting firm, you can be more than just an accounting firm. You can be an accounting right. firm that gives back to your community. You can be an accounting firm that creates career development opportunities for your people. 
Uh, there's so many ways that you can tell a story that's exciting and compelling and speaks to the candidate. And we take that messaging into the market on your behalf, or if you do it for yourself, those are the things that I think you need to consider is, you know, what is your entire employee value proposition? What, what beyond money do you have to offer in the way of being an organization that cares, being an organization that's making a difference in society um, and how you're doing that, you know, how you're helping um, uh, people develop their careers, how you're reskilling and upskilling people so they have the skills they need for tomorrow's jobs, things that people would actually come to work for because they're not getting that what they are. And that could be worth more than mm -hmm. money. So there's lots of lots yep. of things, lots of ways, lots of tools, if you will, in the toolkit. Some of which come to light when you're recruiting, and others, you know, you know, if you're looking at your team today and saying, what can we be doing more of, and what can we be doing a better job to retain the talent that we have. So, it, so that's I love that, and it, you know, it, it's a combination of all of it. I mean, you need to be competitive on compensation. You know, that's got to be an important piece of it today for sure, but. Um, you know, it's engaging that passion, that motivation, as as you said, for people, what that vision is of an organization, how they feel like they belong. If companies that, you know, win at that or are really good at that are, are, are likely going to navigate this sort of time we're in. Is that kind of a good summary of how, how you're seeing that? 100%. Uh, I think those will be yeah. the winning organizations because they don't just yeah. get people um, they don't just get employees, they get passionate employees, they get engaged and committed yeah. employees, the ones that want to come to work every day, whether coming to work means coming to their kitchen table or going to the office. Uh, and, and when you can unlock discretionary effort to the extent that, you know, these kinds of organizations who, who really invest in their people and support their people and, you know, support their communities and give back to their communities. Uh, those are the organizations that, that are going to win. No question. Yeah. And it's, you know, this probably answers this other question, but we're talking about recession right now. And this year, 2023 being a really challenging year and there may be layoffs and different things. I'm assuming that if you were giving advice to companies today of how to kind of be successful in retaining and attracting top talent through a recession, your answer that you just said is likely a big part of that. Is there anything Absolutely. else that you see that companies need to be doing right now as, as it relates to where, where the economics are at in the world? Uh, I don't know if this is relating to the economics so much as it just is something that we haven't touched upon yet. So I want, want to take a moment to go there, yeah. but I think there's a lot of, yeah. um, there's a lot of companies that aren't organized really well um, and that don't have great systems and processes and practices to support the work that needs to be done. And, you know, there's never a better time than now to start working on those things. People get really mm -hmm. frustrated with crappy technology. Uh, they get really frustrated if, you know, if their jobs are poorly defined or if there's a whole body of work that should be being done by somebody that isn't being done by anyone. It's just kind of falling off the side of someone's desk because there's just is no, no time to get to it. Um, organizationally, even small organizations need to be using this time, any time to be thinking, how can we organize ourselves optimally? And how can we lead ourselves optimally? I'm doing a search right now. It's the first time ever that this 
mid-size accounting firm, in fact, has hired a COO. Um, because up until now, they've had a partner who's had marketing on the side of their desk and another partner who's had mm -hmm. HR on the side of her desk and another partner who's had IT on the side of his desk. Nobody's job is any of these things. And so these things are not mm -hmm. being done well. And, and because they are not being yeah. done well, the consultants and the uh, auditors and the tax folks and the admins are frustrated because there's gaps in how we're doing things. And the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. So you need to attend to how you organize yourselves and how you organize your work, because that can take a ton of frustration off the table and make people very satisfied with the way work is getting done inside the company. Great advice. I Great, great advice. I've seen that play out in companies I've been involved in. And, uh, you know, I, I think that that's very, very powerful at times when things are slower, you know, it's, it's leveraging that it's improving that foundation, that process. That's great advice. Um, and, I want to just Tim, segue you, a little I, bit. I just, sorry. I just wanted to yeah, say, you don't have sorry, to hire someone. You don't have to hire someone externally to do that. You can look internally right. and, and select right. someone who's ready for that next challenge and, and, and give right. them that responsibility. Then it's a win-win. You've just promoted someone, set them up with a new mm -hmm. challenge and you're attending to some of the stuff that's broken inside your organization. That's so, so, so many companies just don't think about, but it's sometimes it's really yeah. basic stuff, but it can be fixed and it can mm -hmm. be fixed to everyone's advantage. Well, and when it Sorry, gets I, fixed, you're, I, I, I'm assuming when you get, when it, when you do fix it, your retention numbers go up quite a bit because like you say, people are now not frustrated with those issues. And Correct. that's probably a big part. As you said, it's not always, it's not always about income. It's about job satisfaction and whether they like doing what they're doing every day. Um, so yes. I, I think that's bang on. I, I want to, uh, when it comes to selecting a search firm to partner with, and I just want to bring it back to your company and as you're coaching people, what criteria should employers look for in making a decision around what type of a search firm to work with? Oh, gosh, that's a leading question. Let's see how I can spin that to my advantage. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me see. So I think, I think that there are, uh, there are a number of factors to consider. Um, I think a lot of, People and companies uh, stay local. I don't know that that's necessary, but I understand why they do that. Feeling that if it's the firm down the street that their buddy used, that that's good enough for me. Um, I, I would challenge people to think more broadly about you know what to look for in a search firm. And and uh, and joking aside, I think you want to look for a firm that has uh, longevity. So that's been around for a number of years and has a good long track record of being successful in, in, in solving these, these issues for their clients, uh, where there's actually tenure on the team. So not a lot of turnover, because that tells me the same thing about a search firm as it tells me about anything else, anybody else. It's that this is a great place to work. People love what they do and they stay. And that's usually mm -hmm. a very good sign. Um, I would choose a firm that has a leveraged model because I think that uh, in, in such a firm, you've got research consultants that are really good at digging out the talent that you want to go get and then partners that do a really good job of assessing that talent. And, you know, partners can do it all, but if they're doing it all, they're probably 
loving one part of their job more than the other right. and, and maybe not being as thorough as they could otherwise be. Uh, of course, you have to look for, you know, track record. Um, but I, again, I think sometimes uh, companies choose the firm that has lots of experience in a specific industry. And I put more stock on, you know, working with a firm that you feel a really strong connection to. As long as they have some experience in your industry, that should be sufficient. Um, but, but don't work with a firm just because they've got a big brand uh, or they've got a big snazzy head office. Work with a firm that you really feel is going to take the time to both really understand your needs and where your organization is and needs to go. And then it's going to dedicate the time to helping you get there and not yeah. pass you off to somebody else. Right. No, that's, that's perfect. Um, you know, and even in our experience working with groups like yours, I, COVID has really changed a lot of that. You know, in the past, we probably would have picked a group down the street to help us hire people. Um, and we always thought that whoever we found was going to be somebody local. And I think that remote work and that has really changed perspectives on, well, where is the talent? It doesn't have to be in Alberta. You know, I know for us as an example, I know we've actually through your organization and others, it's yeah, actually we can work remotely and we can actually create hybrid types of work environments where we're maybe hiring somebody of Ontario, where there's maybe more talent to choose from. Um, so I think that that's, that's definitely uh, definitely changed. And then maybe from that perspective, being able to work with organizations, like you say, that aren't just down the street, that have access to, to talent differently. So right. th thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to just segue now a little bit. If, you know, if companies want resources or want to learn more about what your organization does or just recruitment in, in general or, uh, you know, kind of some of these issues – how how can they reach out to you? What are what are some resources you can you can suggest that may be a good place for them to start? Well, um, reaching out to me is super easy. Uh, it's you know Lisa Knight at lhh .com. Um, Our our firm's website is lhhnightsbridge.com. Uh, I think you can back into it through LHH, but you're better just to go straight to LHH Knightsbridge. That's the recruitment business in Canada. Um, and, um, yeah, in terms of resources, uh, you know, again, if you, uh, if you're interested, we, we, uh, a lot of my, um, perspective on these trends and what's happening in, in business today, uh, comes through obviously lots of reading and lots of discussion with, with various clients, but we also, uh, recently put out, um, a white paper, uh, that ADECO actually uh, developed uh, after having spoken to some 3,000 uh, employees across the globe, or 30,000 employees across the globe, my apologies. Uh, and I'd be happy to uh, to share that. I don't know if there's a way that I can get that to you, Tim, or uh, make that available to uh, the audience, but it's a really great uh, resource because it kind of, it's called the the talent conundrum, and it goes into some detail around some of the topics that we, we touched upon today and what companies can be doing to win the war for talent. Yeah, that's that's perfect, Lisa. And maybe you happy. I'd love to read that white paper. Maybe you can share that with me. Um, we can maybe collaboratively share it a bit on social media. 
um, and through some of the websites that we've got. We're happy to share that with our audience and uh, uh, maybe do some links post this session. So thank you for that. Um, and I, I just on that note, Lisa, I just want to wrap up by saying thank you so much for taking the time today to meet with us out of your busy schedule. Um, as expected, uh, you know, you shared your experience, your insights. I know I got a lot out of the conversation today. I'm sure our listeners did. Uh, so again, thank you so much. And I hope that you have a great break. You have a wonderful holiday and thank I'll you. look forward to uh, reconnecting with you when you're back, uh, back in town. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, Tim. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I don't do this very often, as I think you know, but it was uh, it was a great pleasure and and uh, it was a lot of fun. So uh, yeah. let's let's uh, let's do it again sometime if there's a new topic that, that you think you know could be of interest. It's uh, it's it's a lot of fun. I'd love that, and you're a natural. So thank you again so much for oh. uh, for sharing your time with us today. And on that note, that ends this edition of the Innovative Accountant Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our episode today. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Innovative Accountant Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show and even learned something new. If you're interested in elevating your firm and transforming your client experience to create sustainable firm growth, get in touch with us by visiting integratedadvisory.ca to set up your free call with one of our integrated advisory experts. Visit integratedadvisory.ca today to set up your free call with an integrated advisory expert. Be sure to subscribe to the Innovative Accountant Podcast so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in for the next episode of the Innovative Accountant Podcast. Production of the podcast is by At Heart Creative and can be found online at atheartcreative.com.